Hi guys. Well, uh, you thought depth was finished, but <laughs> I was going to say it's only just beginning, but it's really lame. Either way, <laughs> welcome back. Uh, we have a really exciting episode for you here. Um, it's exciting, not only because I have the great team around me again of Emily, Nick and Laura. Welcome guys. Hello. Hello. <laughs> but I have a special guest from the Deep South, <laughs> if that's a thing in Australia, but not really. Uh, his name is Mark Sayers. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you. Um, so as is just sort of custom with our guests, a few questions to begin with. We know your name because I just spoiled that. Uh, Mark, could you tell us what you do with your days, what you do with your life? Yeah, so uh, I'm a husband to Trudy and uh, father to uh, Grace, uh, who's nine, and my twin boys, Billy and Hudson. Uh, I'm also a senior pastor of Red Church. Um, yeah, and do a bit of writing and speaking uh, on the site as well. A bit of writing. <laughs> Six books down. <laughs> so good. Um, random one, your favourite dance move. Now, you have to say something. I know that we're all white and we don't have natural rhythm, like we don't have natural rhythm but... Just feel free to throw something out there. <laughs> well, uh, I have a rule now that I'm over 40 is just don't get injured. So anything that doesn't get injured is my, my answer. <laughs> nice one. Excellent. The white guy shuffle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just the old finger click, you know. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Uh, you, you mentioned Red Church. Can you tell us a bit more about it? Um, where you guys are located, what you guys are, and what you do? Yeah, so we're a, a church um, that uh, is in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. So we have two locations that we currently worship at, which is in Nanawadi and in Kilside. Um, and yeah, it's a long story, which takes an entire podcast in of itself. <laughs> really, I guess the sort of church was, in a sense, a replant um, about sort of seven years ago um, when I took over and um, you know, got very small and then has replanted and then got sort of grown it and blessed it and... Uh, yeah, it's a real joy and privilege to have a chance to minister here. Fantastic. A um, few more nerdy questions because you're a, a writer and I'm sure you, ha- you can answer these very well. Some, what, who are your must-read authors, some of your must-read books perhaps, and if you're a podcast guy, what are your go-to podcasts? Yeah. I mean, I'm always hesitant with books because I often read books and I sort of see part of my role as reading books so that others don't have to read them. <laughs> <laughs> my favourite books, which you don't have to buy. Uh, <laughs> Calvin's Institutes or something. Uh, my favourite novel is Confederacy, Confederacy of Dunces, um, uh, which I've read many times. I love Tom Reese's The Orientalist, which is a fantastic memoir of history. Module 16's The Rites of Spring, a sort of bizarre history, cultural book. Um War and Peace, Tolstoy. Oh. <laughs> Light reading. Yeah, all these sounds so, so, so like... good. <laughs> um, but it's worth it. Um, yeah, that sounded really... No, it's good. I'm going to still put it in there. I'm just going to claim it. Um, claim it. <laughs> uh, I, do, I do like podcasts. I actually more listen to sort of world affairs podcasts um, sort of stuff. So, yeah, again... Just unusual stuff. Russian politics, weird stuff. Wow. I, stuff. I did Russian history at uni, so I'm just like, yes. <laughs> what can you tell us? Can you give us a random fact about Russia that none of us will know because we don't listen to Russian politi- like political <laughs> podcasts? Oh, I mean, one of the people I'm really interested in is a guy called Vladislav Serkov, who is an avant-garde uh, art guy, theatre guy, uh, advertising exec, who, who basically sort of credited the brand of Putin. Um, wow. And... Yeah, gave his talk about what he was going to do 
um, and so fascinating. So studying him a few years ago and just seeing his effect now, I think on everything from fake news to how we do politics now. So Vladislav Sirkov, uh, when politics becomes art. Wow. Okay. Sounds fascinating. Cool. <laughs> Time to queue it up. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds really interesting. Fantastic. Cool. Um, let's talk about Disappearing Church. So this is uh, your second most recent book. It's a book that we based a lot of our um, our series at church around. Um, actually, going up, sorry, one level before we talk about specific Disappearing Church what what made you um, decide to start researching and writing about church culture? Where did this whole um, where does this story begin for you? Well, I never intended to. I, I'd done some writing, so I'd, I'd written for the War Cry, like um, Salvation Army magazine, and just some different mags. I worked writing for a magazine, but then I never thought that I would write books, and so that stopped that. And then just out of the blue, I was just approached um, by a publisher to write, and just got this call from. Thomas Nelson one day wanted me to write some books. Um, and so, yeah, so it's sort of something I fell into, um, but it just absolutely loved. And I guess I'm just someone who's always trying to understand the world, where culture's at, where the world's at, how faith fits in that. That's just how my mind always thinks. So I just feel very privileged to get a chance to just put that in book form and, you know, and not let it just be a, a, an itchy thing in my head and actually use it to help other people. So mm. it's just constantly in my head um, and I get to put it on paper. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's uh, Nick asked this off off mic. That's a fancy term that Laurie used last night, last last week. Um, how do you how do you go about uh, remaining uh, engaged with a culture that's very fast moving, both like um, sort of exterior to church, but also inside church? Um, yeah. So I guess there's a there's a mechanism that you use to fuel these books and um, and to populate them and, and to help your ideas come to fruition. Uh, how do you go about that? Mm. I think it's a couple of things. I think one is, is you know, I think I've learned to rely on history a lot and realise that, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes and there are certain patterns. Um, you know, I think we're going through a, a sort of chaos a bit at the moment, political polarization everyone's like wow this has never happened before but i think it happened in the 70s i think it happened in the 30s hmm. um, happened at the 19th century things tend to repeat a little bit um so under, understanding where the ideas that we have now come from i think is really key so reading history um secondly just observing like what's happening in the culture around us and i think i used to be a lot more obsessed with popular culture but i think now we're more driven by global culture um and world affairs is actually driving us more than popular culture uh, so I've probably focused more on sort of world affairs uh, and sort of globalization the last few years. So watching that, you know, like like that little funny example I gave before, but, you know, I started really watching what was happening in Russia like about three years ago and then seeing how that's now playing out, you know, what's happening with China. So just, just trying to watch the world. Cool. So let's talk about Disappearing Church. Something that we didn't have time to do um, in our series was talk about two things that are quite fundamental to the book uh, and what Mark continues to talk about. And I guess subsequently, they were underneath a lot of what Miles and Ron spoke about. The two things in particular um, is something called the third culture and another thing called a creative minority. So Mark, um, starting from the top, can you give us a brief summary of what it is, as in what the third culture is and how you see it converting church culture? 
yeah, I realize so much of our approach to ministry at the moment is under the guise of relevance. Uh, and really relevance is defined our ministry probably for, you know, 20 to 30 years. And that's the idea that if we can be as relevant to unchurched culture uh, as we possibly can, that that's going to create ministry success, it's going to create evangelistic success, it's going to create discipleship success. Um, and really that idea comes from the application of a, pro, a principle from the study of missions uh, to a Western context. So missions is communicating from a Christian culture, which I call a, a second culture, to a first culture, which is a pre-Christian culture. So when you do that, you've got to be aware that you're not pushing your culture uh, on the pre-Christian culture that you're doing, that you're just communicating the gospel and you're not giving other things which are cultural baggage um, aside from the gospel. So then when you had missionaries uh, just after World War II returning, people like you know, Donald McGavran and Peter Wagner and, and Leslie Newbegin, these guys sort of said, hey, let's look at the post-Christian West as a kind of mission field. So what we did is we said, well, let's then take the same principles of looking for cultural bridges and cultural symbols and communicate that way. Uh, but what I realized was that is almost this point where the, the strategy of relevance almost didn't begin to work because what began to happen was that it didn't matter how cool you were. If you did not agree with the aggressive secular West vision of, um, say, sexuality or uh, even its particular view of tolerance or the particularity of Jesus, that it didn't matter how cool you were, you were out. And you began to see this sort of move from a... Um, almost just a hedonistic sort of post-Christian culture into this quite sort of dogmatic post-Christian culture. And so that's why I talk about the third culture. What a lot of people didn't realise is that you now have this third culture which has emerged, which is post-Christian, but it's not in the sense that it's forgotten about Christianity. Rather, it's defining itself against any kind of culture that has come before. So it's this sense of any kind of culture uh, has to be completely... Um, deconstructed and taken apart. So doing discipleship and ministry into that space is very different and the ministry of relevance is not going to have the effectiveness that it does uh, as we originally thought. Interesting that you just mentioned, I guess, the difficulty in uh, the ability to preach into those cultures. One of the questions we have here is um, a lot of established churches have an ability and they have systems that have been designed to reach first cultures quite well have you, I guess, since thinking about this idea of a third culture, have you seen any effective model, notion, or even just a, a basic idea of what it may look like to minister to a, to a third culture from a church point of view? Yeah. Um, I think I think for me, like, I, I don't think there's necessarily a model, but it's been really interesting in the last few years becoming some friends with a bunch of other pastors in, you know, really quite you know, secular progressive cities. And what you find is you go to these places and you, everyone will be like, oh, it's so secular here. It's so progressive. This could be Copenhagen. This could be Portland. This could be London or whatever, and or Melbourne. And, and yet in those places, you tend to find a very alive church, often filled with the kind of young adults that people are saying are not coming to church. Um, and, you know, part of my question is what's going on? And I began to look at similarities. And I think that, you know, one preaching, you know, orthodox truths, but doing that with a very key understanding of preaching into the city 
um, is one thing. I think having a discipleship process which understands that you can't take anything for granted, that people are coming not as sort of semi-well-formed disciples or even semi-well-formed humans, um, that people are coming from a culture which is deconstructed, um, you know, identity, it's deconstructed families, it's deconstructed notions of truth, it's deconstructed everything, um, and that you have to begin the discipleship process from the very beginning. Um, a real sense, too, of equipping people to actually be resilient in, in that culture versus just saying, hey, here's a Christian veneer over the secular dream, but actually getting them to question the secular dream. Um, and then I think a real openness and joy that comes through the spirit um, in the sense of not being defeated and not sort of having this, like, we're just going to hunker down until Jesus comes because it's so terrible, but realizing that there's challenges, but that there's life and meaning to be found in those challenges. So I guess there's some of the contours that I've seen that seem to be working in those scenarios. Awesome. We'll actually touch on, uh, we've got a question later on that talks about living in victory versus defeat, um, but that's for later on. I've been talking a lot. Team, any uh, any questions for uh, Mark so far, especially around third cultures? Yeah, I've got a question, Mark. Um, so something that I've kind of been observing lately is a, a, um, a rejection of the, the promised future that kind of was that social media or just this kind of constant striving for, as we were talking about relevance, just in, in even non-church settings of just people... Um, I used this phrase before on a previous podcast, but just people that are tired of this constant, relentless, banal kind of construction of a personal brand and um, are just kind of rejecting the idea that we have to be up to date and relevant and sharing and um, sharing everything and just constantly presenting a face to people that in order to be accepted by them. And I'm seeing, a re I'm starting to see, I think, a rejection of that in pretty mainstream ways. Um, that I think will be kind of reflected in church as we kind of go along. Um, I, I, does that resonate with you in any way or um, yeah. It's like, a, it's like a digital resistance, isn't it? Yeah. Digital resistance, but also just the kind of the, a, a, a digital, I mean, a, a rejection of everything that that stands for as well about understanding who you are and kind of, um, and coming to a place of not needing to construct that personal brand. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, part of the reason I didn't want to write another book after the Spring Church, but the reason I did is, is that I began to see the emergence of a fourth culture. And I don't call it that as much in the, in the book Strange Days, but that's really what I'm talking about. That, And it's just the beginning. But the real lifestyle of, you know, digital personality, of creating identity, um, really, you know, came about in a really unique time in history. And that was after the fall of communism, uh, you know, in 1989, sort of to 90s it fell um, and it seemed that the world was heading towards this utopia of globalization where we would all have you know be able to jet around the world and all be on the internet and everyone would stop believing stuff so strongly and politics would come right into the middle and liberal and labor would look exactly the same and and really the world would just sort of you know slowly drift towards perfect coffee and you know <laughs> And, you know, you had people like Alan Greenspan, the, the chairman of the US Fed, you know, talking about, you know, a, a, a continual growth economy, that there was never going to be a, um, uh, you know, uh, economic recession ever again. Um, particularly, this was incredibly intense, I think, from around 2000 to around 2014. And, you know, it's the era I call the, the era of Paris Hilton, 
where it was very much about conspicuous consumption. It was very much about an overt performative sexuality. Um, you know, it was sort of the, you know, the era of, um, you know, when particularly a lot of Gen Ys or millennials were told that they could have it all and their dreams would come true. Um, and really, I think with the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, um, you began to see a series of shocks around that. And now what we're having is a moving into a fourth culture where that dream now is looking impossible. The other thing that happens around that time is in 2007, the iPhone comes out. And I just saw the statistics um, the other week, which Jean Twenge in her new book um, on, you know, uh, iGen, I think she's calling it, you know, the first generation who grew up with iPhones is the drop off in health, mental health, the rise in suicide, uh, the rise in isolation, the drop-off in even people wanting to get their driver's license is staggering from 2007 onwards. Like there's basically a line where the iPhone comes in and just health and well-being drops off. So I think what you're seeing is now stage B for Gen Ys, um, which was predicted, you know, way back in the early 2000s, the, you know, UN was, you know, a World Health Organization rather was predicting a coming um sort of uh, uh, epidemic of depression um, because of inflated life expectations. So I think this is also, a lot of people don't realise this has been driving, I think, a lot of our political, um, uh, you know, chaos in the world. Um, you're seeing increasingly around the world um, in European cities, same happening in the United States, same in Australia, is the rise of a one-person household and single people tend to vote um, more politically extreme is what the research says. Uh, so I think we're seeing this return from you can have it all, you can be everything. People are realising that that's not true and thus uh, getting quite sick of, you know, I think digital capitalism um, and digital uh, identity creation and are actually returning to the political religions uh, just as they did in the 1930s and in the 1970s. All of a sudden I understand why somehow you know, teaching to this third and fourth culture is amazingly difficult. <laughs> tricky. Yeah. yeah. Um, Emily or Laura, anything on third culture before we talk about creative minority? Uh, no, I don't think so. Just what you were saying, uh, as I said earlier, I work in a university and so it's not just church culture that we're seeing Absolutely. this effect. Like, um, yeah, a lot of what we talk about at university is keeping this generation that, uh, yeah, aren't, as satisfied and are told that they're everything. And then the government is now like, Oh, if you keep more students, you'll get more money. And it's, that's not how university works. And so we've just been having to change how we do things and almost coddle a lot of university students to help them get through yeah, their first year, um, which I find fascinating because I don't think work culture has changed that much yet. Um, yeah. So that's going to be interesting as I guess, this generation becomes the main people in the work culture. Oh, yeah. Well, there's, um, I mean, there's two, if I could say, just make a comment on that. There's an interesting phenomenon which is hitting across the West called the overproduction of elites. And it's basically the idea that colleges, you know, universities began to sell um, education to whole swathes of the community, which didn't necessarily need it. And therefore, we're now with automation and just the overbalance of that having more people graduating with higher education, but then without the requisite social stability of getting married, getting a job, 
So you're having an increasing amount of university graduates across the Western world who are unemployed, um, and that creates a real anger. And then at the same time, you've also got um, something called the immigrant paradox at play, which is that immigrants who come from another country tend to have much greater higher resilience and tend to flourish often better now than native-born people. Um, so you've got this thing where, um, you know, you've got this sort of disadvantage. That, and that's where you're seeing a lot of, I think, the anti-immigrant backlash happening around the place at the same time. And you've got immigrants who are, you know, resilient. And then you've got people graduating from, from university that are fragile. So that's a fascinating dynamic that's going to play out more and more. Yeah, and I mean, um, I won't labour on this point for too long, but as studying narcissism, uh, a fragile or vulnerable self is the core kind of component of it. it presents as grandiose and kind of, but the a fragility and vulnerability in your sense of self is what the kind of the core constituent of narcissism is. So, um, and even just, I was just reading this paper the other week about, um, you know, young people that have grown up tethered their whole life and being have never formed a solid identity kind of thing because they've they've never had that. There used to be this stage in life in which people were found themselves fundamentally untethered to their uh, social relationships, to the help that they were used to relying on. Um, and mm. so they kind of had to go, well, I guess I uh, just got me to rely on. But mm. that doesn't happen anymore these days, um, or it's very yes. hard to do. And so um, it's, people are... So you mentioned Jean Twenge before, so just she's a narcissism researcher, and I think she does a lot of great stuff because. So I, I study more clinical like personality syndromes, but she studies large kind of social, like on a less clinical but but very still I think significant that um, effects of narcissism, and I think there's something to be said for that for mm. our society at large. This kind of simmering undercurrent of vulnerability and um, and a kind of lack of a consistent or coherent identity and internal emptiness mm. um which is mm. yeah i think that's something to be explored absolutely and i think i think too i mean this might sort of you know segue into creative minorities but it's it's so important for people to realize that accompanying that is then a religious shift so for example since world war ii what really defined us culturally was the idea of the adolescent so after World War II, you have these GIs and returning servicemen coming back. They've got money. Um, the teenager really, you know, arises in after World War II. And, you know, it's rock and roll. It's Elvis. It's Marilyn Monroe. It's adolescent sexuality. It's rebellion. It's questioning. Um, and, you know, that was sort of what the church was trying to respond to with relevance. Say, hey, adolescents, you can be cool and come to church. But then in just the last five years, it's now a flip from adolescence to childhood. And so exactly that tethering, that paternalistic, that thing you see at colleges of, hang on, who's going to do something for me? And even a reaction against free speech, um, mm. which is saying, I don't want to hear that. That's hurting me. And it's a religious tone because it's a paternalistic. So the old tone was like rebellion. And Paris Hilton was like, hey, I'm just going to you know, dance half naked on a video and do this or whatever and take drugs um, and spend money. Now it's like, you better not be doing that and you can't say that. And it's a much more sort of puritanical tone, but it's a secularised puritanical tone. Um, and it was just an amazing thing. I don't know if you saw any of the Katy Perry 24-hour. She was filmed herself for 24 hours. And there was um, one bit where she was watching. I didn't watch the whole thing. I just saw a highlight. Um, <laughs> sure you did. <laughs> I haven't slept. No. Um, the... Uh, she was watching her video from about six years ago or something 
and to what she is now. And in the video, it was very sexualized and it was all about yeah, sexuality and partying. And then it sort of contrasted to her now and, you know, her hair's sort of short and she's like cut back on all that sort of styling and she's almost apologising for everything now politically mm-hmm. and it's a fascinating move in a religious direction but it's a secularised religious tone, not a Christianised religious tone. So that's so key for people to understand. We're no longer necessarily dealing with the rebellious culture. We're now dealing with a culture who thinks that we're immoral. I could just sit here all day and listen to this. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Well, yeah, so like you said, Mark, this is a really good segue into um, creative minorities. Um, How do you, I guess, quickly defining them, but also um, what are some key opportunities you see for the group that you would call to become a creative minority to perhaps rebuild our culture? Again, a culture that is outside of church and then a culture inside of church because we have another question about you know even being a creative minority inside a church which sounds a bit interesting but um before we get there yeah any 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 thoughts there essentially what i mean by creative minority and it's something i've sort of borrowed from a english mid-century thinker called Anna toynbee um and and he had the idea that um cultures are refreshed by a minority that doesn't fit in and faces some kind of marginalization because of their views but then because they're marginalised, are able to see some of the big idols of that culture and then come back having rid themselves of those idols with a healing truth for the wider culture. And part of the reason I thought that was so right is, I I think it's very biblical. I think Israel is a creative minority. I think the prophets are creative minorities within Israel. In the Old Testament, there's a remnant, which is a creative minority in in the creative minority. I think the church is a creative minority um, and then various renewal movements throughout history are very creative minority, creative minorities within the church. Um, but I realised that we needed to move from a, and, and I think I think some of the interesting sort of canary in the mind moment was seeing how difficult it was for people to grasp onto a Christian sexual ethic um, in a culture where relevance really told us that. If you're just cool, if you wear the coolest jeans and you go to the hipster coffee shop and you watch all of the coolest movies and you watch and download the coolest series, that's going to downplay any uncomfortability between you and the culture. When actually we need to reframe uncomfortability as a really healthy thing for us as humans and realise that actually humans find meaning when there's a mix between freedom and meaning. And and unlimited freedom doesn't always give you meaning. So we want unlimited freedom. We want unlimited comfortability. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But you don't get a sense of meaning without actually meeting limitations, actually finding challenges, finding difficulties is actually how you find meaning. So for me, it was a model, which I think was an alternative to the relevant model, which was actually developing a sense of resilience through facing struggles, um, and that's hard for a generation, particularly who's been told and protected from any form of struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in the book gospel resilience, uh, in particular. Would you just, I guess, for folks who haven't read um, the book, but would I guess would will be able to take a lot from that? Would you mind just touching on what that means? Mm. I mean, I mean, the story of Jesus is an incredible one of a young adult who continually walks against the dominant culture of the day in terms of the Greco-Roman culture. He walks against 
the dominant religious Jewish culture from which he's with, within. He's rejected in his own hometown. His own mum comes at one point and going, what the heck are you doing? And, and continually walks towards the cross. And in the midst of that becomes more and more fully human, more fully human than any human's ever been. And eventually at the resurrection is the kind of human that anyone who follows Christ will become when the dead are resurrected in the final judgment. And so if you look at that life, this is the life of someone who almost goes in the complete opposite direction to everything that we've been told by the life around us. The gospel is the good news and it's a salvific message with salvation. But I think also it points us towards a way to live actually through denying ourselves, through completely bowing our individuality at the foot of someone else and giving our life to Christ. We begin to, when we truly embrace that, we begin to gain this kind of resilience because no one in a sense owns you except from Christ you're not bound to the powers and principalities of this world anymore. There's this incredible freedom that comes in it, but there's also this sense of meaning too, because your life is now infused with meaning. So I think that essence of the gospel as something which gives us resilience is something which I think is incredibly profound and, and needs to be spoken about more. And, and you know, I think a lot of people hear that in churches that preach the gospel but really grasping that as the central point of central organizing principle for your life um, is so important at this time. Absolutely. Yeah. Nick's got a question. It's, it's really difficult though. I'm, I'm, I can't get past, you know, just when I think of the idea of a creative minority, that it's a minority. Hmm. And I, I'm, I am in dissonance when I think about um, that call and seeing the truth like just what you said and seeing the truth that kind of resonates in that, but also being thinking of the idea of might equals right, which is so ingrained into just, um, I don't know, maybe historically from where we come from, but just the idea that if I'm coming to a church and there's only 15 people there, we're doing something wrong kind of thing. Mm. You know what I mean? And that's, and even like, even when I say that, I'm thinking, no, that can't be right. But also, I know that that's, that will be my gut response. And people hearing this will maybe feel the same way. That when there's yeah. when if there's pruning that happens, and because, you know, I think I've said this on a podcast on one of the episodes before as well, that there's, I'm seeing a lot of pruning happening in the global church kind of thing. And as much as I think that's good, it's also really scary. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, I, th I think there's a myth of secularization that we have, which is the idea that at some point in 1200 AD, say, in Europe, everyone went to church and everyone was totally fired up for their faith. And then slowly over time, it's just been like, you know, sand through the hourglass, just dribbling away. And here we are today. And if there was a graph, it'd be really high in the Middle Ages or the second century and just slowly dropping off. But if you actually look at it, you know, there's a time in the 16th century when uh, there was something like six people turned up at St. Paul's Cathedral in London for Easter service. Um, the first church in Australia was burnt down and it was a 500-seater built by Richard Johnson, the chaplain, which he had to pay for with donations because the government wouldn't give him any money. And I think it was Christmas, like 40, 50 people turned up. Mm. The high point of religion in Britain, um, according to, I think it's Davis in his book, The Death of Christian Britain, is actually 1945. Um, and if you, if you look at, religion is about revivals and drop-offs. You know, we see that in the book of Judges. There's this cycle where the people forget 
um, you see that in the history of Israel, every generation has this opportunity to die to the flesh, open the hearts of the spirit and be reborn again. And in the way that God uses that continually is allowing those who have, I'm going to call it cultural Christianity to find out what it is to have a foot in both camps and to find the failure that happens through that. And he always is creating a hardened remnant. And he is so much more happy to have a remnant of a victim than a, you know, a, a, a mass who, who are half-hearted. Mm. Um, you know, I look in Melbourne at the moment, I was talking to the alpha guys and they're currently printing just almost as much as English resources Farsi, Persian. Um, there are more Persians who have come Christians, become Christians in the last 10 years as there have been in the last 10 centuries. You know, why? Because there was the Iranian revolution in 1979 and many of these people were sent across the world with nothing. And I was talking to a guy last weekend at a wedding and just the stories of conversion of Muslim people, Zoroastrian people, Baha'i people coming to faith from that because they're this minority. And I think... The danger is when you see the story of secularization as this continual dropping off thing, crowds can become a drug. We feel a sense of safety if we're dropping off and, oh, hang on, oh, it's going up again. There's a crowd, you know, hmm. when actually God doesn't rebirth always through crowds. Sometimes crowds come in revivals, but they begin with hardened minorities who are, who are sold out for Jesus. I have a question on that but and i think we'll use it as sort of the end of um the discipline trip stuff but do you um, do you guys have anything to add before we go into it just on that point mark and it, it's a it's possibly it's quite an uncomfortable question i think um i have been talking to um a few people who have read your book and there's this alarming sense of if you look around the western church i shouldn't be ignorant to the fact that i myself you know, Bo can just as easily fall into the cultural trappings of relevancy just as much as everyone else. And there are ways to sort of safeguard myself against that. And I guess that's what our series is talking about um, as far as being deeply rooted in Christ to avoid some of those trappings. But my question is around what does a creative minority look like potentially inside of church? So we're talking about a, a hypothetical church culture where everyone's just under the guise of of the story that you're talking about before mark that relevancy is cool it's going to bring the people back it's going to it's going to bring this revival um in quotation marks what does it look like to be i guess a um a counter-cultural unit inside a church that may be thinking along those lines but you find yourself is this is this actually working um does that make any sense at all totally um the first point is my mentor says to me often, Mark, much better people than you and I have fallen. And I think that hovering over us at all times is so key, fallen away from our faith. Um, the second point is the story of a creative minority church, I, I want to tell in a way, but I want to avoid something. I was at times a young punk with the arrogance of youth, as Tolstoy said, youth is wasted on the young. Thought I knew better. Thought I, knew better. Um, I had a very sobering moment a few years ago when I sat down with a, a really faithful pastor who's in his later years 
and he'd heard me when I was a young punk and I was an eloquent young punk and he heard me talking and I was talking at my butt really when I look back now um, and there was more bluster than gospel and he wondered whether it was time for him to leave because you know it's time to deconstruct everything and years later his ministries flourished and he sat down and very gently shared what it was like to hear a young punk with a sense of rebellion um, come against. So I really want to be careful that people don't hear this as a thing of coming against. Mm. Um, it's easy to say, hey, we're a creative minority. We don't like the ministry team's doing. We don't like what the pastor's doing and blah, blah, blah. Now, there is a kind of creative minority which does ruin you. Um, so Francis of Assisi saw a broken down church and felt God speak to him to rebuild that church. Originally, he just started trying to re actually technically rebuild the broken down church, literally with bricks. Um, but then what God was doing with him is something that continually happens in every age where God was asking him to start a renewal. movement. We see it in you know, St. Francis. We see it in Ignatius. We see it in various Catholic renewal movements. We then see it in the Protestant Reformation. We then see it in people like Jonathan Edwards, Wesley, William and Catherine Booth. Again and again, this continues to happen where there's a kind of creative minority that always has to begin spiritually. It has to begin with people coming together to die to their flesh and actually crying out to God to move again. It can't just begin with a spirit of criticism. And even if that criticism is against the spirit of relevance, but when you get a group of people together, particularly young adults who come together and want God to completely take over their life and ask him to come and move again and willing to die to self, willing to die to their own projects, willing to give their entire life to that project and to prayerfully ask for him to come again. That's a different creative minority, which, which does change the world. Mm. Um, just to sort of touch on something you just mentioned, Mark, you are someone in your books who does, I guess, um, you have critiqued culture. How, I guess, how do you say, how do you stay privy to um, culture as it changes? Um, just thinking, I mean, yeah, the, the young punk is something, but we can all, it doesn't matter how old we are, we can all be, you know, blind sometimes to some things um, and even our own sort of triumphant um, ideas and visions. Have you ever had a, a moment where through writing these books, you've actually just had this, oh man, maybe I'm not right or maybe, maybe uh, I've just got to check myself a bit more than I have in the past? Yeah, totally. I mean, so part of my story too is like before writing books, um, you know, I, I had one of the, I was writing for one of the first sort of, let's call it postmodern Christian emerging church websites, pre-blogs, websites, you know, that were out there um, in the 90s. Um, you know, I used to speak around Australia talking a lot about, you know, how we can deconstruct the church and, or not deconstruct the church, but, you know, have a totally deconstructed version of church. And I was, you know, at the beginning of a lot of those conversations. So before my writing career, um, you know, from really my early 20s to 30, um, I did a lot of that. And there was good stuff in there. There was bad stuff. There was ego. There was spirit. Um, when I was 30, before I wrote books, I was sick for a year. And I was basically out of action in bed at home for seven months. And it was an absolute wilderness time. And I had to give up absolutely everything. So God then completely humbled me um, 
and that wasn't the end of the humbling. The humbling always continues. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> cycles. Um, so there's been this continual process of checking my heart. One of the most wonderful um, mechanisms that God has given me to do that is to be a pastor. Um, I'm a church of people who are not enamored by me. Uh, I'm a guy who has lots of theories who then has to go into an office and go, okay, hang on, how does this work in the real world? Um, and very much the critique that you see in my books is actually a critique of what I use, a lot of what I used to say. I was the deconstructive Christian wanting to deconstruct models of church. Um, uh, I was the guy who was brilliant at the critique, but not so good at building. So in many ways, my writing journey has been a journey of preaching to myself, um, but it's always continually met. Just, just, the, just the act of writing books is a continual thing of fighting you know, yourself and stuff like that, you know, I have strict disciplines around um, travel and stuff like that. Um, but a- anyone who finds themselves, um, it, it, it's, we're in a particular time of the month where you're rewarded if you um, can critique well. Weirdly, a lot of the biggest sayers, of, a lot of people with the biggest influence and power in Christianity at the moment in the Western church, are people with blogs or books or speaking circuits who don't actually run churches or actually have to lead anything. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have prophets, but that's an easy place to stand. And it's different to Jeremiah or something, getting a check down a well versus getting a book contract and more Twitter hits. Um, yeah, so I think that those things have been a really interesting, um, you know, thorn in my flesh, which has been very helpful. Awesome. Last week, yeah, we, we were just we were talking about criticism, and yeah, I just I'm always struck by how criticism can. Criticism is an action, so it's easy to... It feels like you're doing something, so you can criticize and then uh, leave the conversation thinking that you've done something creative or done something, you know, meaningful or powerful or positive, um, but without the kind of uh, following it up and Mm. trying to... I don't know, maybe there's a heart thing that needs to change that means you should follow it up and are doing criticizing for the right reasons i suppose yeah and then um, open your own heart yeah yeah well. right yeah. definitely yeah. uh it's a pretty scary slope mm. is what i've noticed cool so after just listening to um a few things you were saying mark about this recruiting church we'll jump into a few pointers that came up during our series here we uh we started the whole series based on um a tree that grows deep roots uh first of all are you happy to tell us i guess where that story came from and and what it means to you and then from there we can jump into some more practical things that we discovered as a church yeah so it's um actually from um the david Attenborough documentary planet earth the first one not the second one and um it's a great yeah, it's got a bit in there. So good. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And they've got a um, bit about the Amazon where a tree, one of these massive trees, which I think like two or 300 years old, they, one of them falls and all of a sudden there's this space in, in, the, in the Amazonian jungle. And they have a time-lapse photography and you see a race really to uh, fill that space as the sort of shaft of light comes through and hits the, the floor of the forest for the first time and initially these sort of quickly these plants grow up and they're these very sort of almost like monsterias or something these very broad leafed plants grow up and 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 then there's shoots through them is sort of these smaller trees and it's this race of this very visual uh plants growing up 
then onto the trees, vines take over. And, you know, you sort of got these you know, small or mid-sized level sort of trees and plants racing to get to the top. But then all of a sudden, just this tree just shoots up and it just goes and goes and goes and just leaves behind all these other trees and, and finally fills that space. And basically, Attenborough says that what's happening is while the other sort of broad-based trees and plants are, are broadleaf rather, are trying to um, grab that space that this big tree wins by going deep. So it's while the others are uh, being very visual and trying to get the sun, it just goes deeper and deeper down until it has the depths of roots to then be able to build a bigger tree. And you know that's the story of how the great trees grow. And it just really struck me of, of what a metaphor for the spiritual life that is. Um, the idea too that you know often you'll see uh, you know people reaching for. Uh, you know, public recognition. We live in, a, in an age of the image where we can create a ministry profile through Facebook and Instagram um, that's not necessarily accompanied by spiritual depth. And so to build a flourishing life, uh, we need to really grow deep and grow deep into things, many of which won't be seen by others. I'd love to just kick this whole, I guess, so one of the, the first thing we spoke about um, here, here at our church was what the role of Bible reading is um, for the Christian, and it's uh, it's one of those things where I think I'm uh, speaking for myself here. I mean, it's something that I, I you know, I've grown up in a church and had a, a season away from church and came back, and it's one of those things that I think people uh, just assume that, that you're doing, um, and it's definitely a lot more difficult than it is. Uh, and we had a, a really cool um, sermon up here where we eventually split off into three seminars that explored just different things about how. Um, can you can you trust the Bible? Uh, how 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 to let the Bible speak to you? Um, I guess just really really practically, Mark, how do you read the Bible? And I guess maybe even how has that changed over your walk with Jesus? Mm. I think I think a few years ago I realised that I read the Bible, but I needed to go deeper with the Bible, and it was really interesting for me. It was it was. You know, I've read books on hermeneutics and read books about the scriptures. But for me, it was really this very practical realization of creating an environment where I would read the Bible. And what I realized, again, with, you know, the advent of the iPhone in 2007, that it changed the environment in which we live. And it meant that the environment, in a sense, is against us. Uh, most people now wake up and turn on their phone. And it used to be that we used to say, oh, you know, we're too busy to read the Bible. I have a quiet time when the fact that I think it's like the average adult spends something like six hours on the phone a day and looks at 365 times or whatever it is, uh, you know, proves that, hey, we've got enough time. So for me, it began to create this daily rhythm where I realized that what would happen was that when you woke and you looked at your phone and you open Facebook or you open Twitter or you even just turned on the news or your text messages is that instantly a tone was set for your day. And the first thoughts of your day were now reactive, not proactive. You were responding to the best, best minds of our generation trying to grab your attention and responding to the attention engineers and architects. And so you know, I would we call it here at church, I just began a slogan called win the day. And basically you win the day by waking up and letting the first things that come into your life be scripture, God's revealed word shaping you for that day. So, you know, I just began to wake up at the exact same time every day 
um, and I just began to, um, I just was actually looking at behavioral sort of economics actually, and sort of behavioral psychologists who would talk about these micro changes. So just creating the least resistance between me and my Bible. So I literally have a space set up in my house where I have my scriptures ready to go. I have the same notebook that I write in and I sort of just write notes. I have this same pen that I write with and I have it all there in this particular spot. I make a coffee and I sit down. So every day it's the same. I took that from the principle of people saying, you know, if you want to go to the gym, have your gym clothes out. Um, so you're not like ferreting around them at six o'clock in the morning where they're in the back of your cupboard. And just that daily rhythm of starting my day with scripture and then asking, how am I going to live that out that day? For me, it's just been a profoundly, you know, life-changing thing. Doing that day after day, it sets my emotional tone for me, which then sets my emotional tone for my family, for my workplace. Um, and I just have, at our church, just push that with people. Okay, going through an issue, are you winning the day? And that's just been profoundly transforming for people. So you go through seasons of reading the Gospels, you know, the prophets, there's all different tones to what you're reading because, you know, you've got so many different genres in the Bible, but that basic structure I found is life-changing. Mark, have you read a book called Nudge? Uh, Cass, Cass Sunstein? Correct. Yeah, it's exactly what you, because you just about like behavioral economics and like micro behaviors that yeah. nudge you towards a certain action. You like, I just assume that that's exactly what you're referring to because I'm in the middle of reading it right now. It's fantastic. And Nick was dropping as well. Yeah. <laughs> We just did a series um, on creating what we call a discipleship-rich environment from, yeah, the idea of, like, how do you use these sort of behavior economics principles um, to actually make your life win for you, not um, work against you. So, you know, work for Christ, not... Because, you know, basically now, if we do everything that environment says, we're going to end up broke, lonely, and unhealthy. Absolutely. What, so... A question for you, Mark, is I'm thinking about like, all the rhythms in the Bible, rhythms of kind of worshipping and rhythms of just rituals and practices. Um, am I drawing a connection that isn't there when I think about that kind of rhythms that you were just talking about? The purpose of some of those practices in the Bible is simply to to get people in the pattern of worshipping and um, and spending time with God. Um, and probably, you know, those rituals might unhealthily take on a spirituality of their own, rogue spirituality kind of thing that become the thing to get you to God that might not be helpful. But is there patterns, is that kind of thing in the Bible as a kind of pre-psychology nudge? Um, uh, yeah, what, what do you think about that? I think it is. I think, I think one, you know, we have this mythology that, you know, I think is a Western construct that we're these incredibly spontaneous, individualistic, free-thinking beings. And I don't think we are. I think, you know, humans are deeply affected by the seasons. We're affected by light and dark. We have circadian rhythms. Um, we're affected by sense and memories. You smell something and it reminds you of something from your childhood. Um, you know, we're very socially conditioned. Um, and, you know, I actually think, oh, I was reading Leslie Newbegin, um, just rereading a part of his book, The Open Secret. And he says, you know, you know, one of the one of the struggles our culture has with, with you know salvation is that you know it doesn't realize that we're saved into a community, the church, we're saved into a people, we're saved into a way, we're saved into creation, uh, or you know, reconnected with it, and then you know, as God recreates the world, we're with him in eternity. Yeah, and so I think that 
you know, uh, I, I think it's that scripture understands what we're like as humans. You know, God created us. You know, there is Sabbath, there is Passover, there was the different holidays of the Jewish calendar. I mean, think about Jesus's life, him growing up in a time and place where it was just saturated with scripture. You know, young men would go and study scriptures in, in the part of the world which he grew up in. You know, there were guys who knew the entire Torah off by heart. And that all came from rhythms and structures. And I think there's a myth that we don't live in one of those. Everyone in planet Earth who's ever lived lives in a highly liturgical, a highly uh, ritualized environment. There's no neutral space. It's just, are you going to be proactive in choosing yours to be shaped by Christ or not? And that's something we have to do together. Like I can't, I can do elements of that by myself, but I can't do that without other people. That, that's why we need the church. Yeah. Well, no, we, we sort of spoke about that, didn't we? Uh, yeah. About the role of, um, and we touched on it in prayer as well. So, uh, just the role of the of, of God's family helping you through that. So, like reading the Bible with someone, praying with someone. It's not a journey that um, necessarily has to be you in a bedroom alone. I know there's a particular verse that talks about that, um, but I don't think that's a permanent state of affairs. Um, was was there anything on that first week, Emily or Laura, just about Bible reading that? you recall or want to bring up? Um, no, I think I just completely agree with um, what you were saying, Mark. And I was actually, before this, I was reading a book on prayer, not Bible reading, um, by Tim Keller. And he was actually referring to Luther and how Luther taught someone to um, pray. So again, I'm talking about praying, not Bible reading. No, but um, Yeah, but he kind of was talking about how even when you don't feel like it, do it because you're going to break through it eventually. And I'm like, well, someone like Luther was saying it very <laughs> quite a while ago. Um, yeah, it just kind of shows that it's things don't change. We, you know, no matter what year we're in, people are going to struggle. But if we keep kind of persevering mm. and, yeah, keeping those habits, mm. yeah, God still speaks to us through them, I believe. Mm-hmm. I think there's a really good point in that too, of bringing up Luther in the sense that, you know, someone like Luther understood that. And I think there's a little bit of a reticent as, you know, Protestants of ritual, which is understandable when it can go to an extreme. Um, but it's interesting too, like, you know, Iris Murdoch, the English writer, talked about a woman who says to her husband every night uh, before they just go to sleep, I love you. And we have this thing of like sincerity, you know, and like, oh, does she mean that every time? And Murdoch says there's going to be some time she actually doesn't mean it. There's going to be some times where she's annoyed with him, just sometimes where she might not even feel attracted to him, other times where she might be madly attracted to him. But saying that every night, Murdoch says it's almost like a prayer, it's a bond that you're saying it and you're physically committing to something and it's something you aim toward, put a focus upon. And I think that that concept is alien to us because of our Protestant heritage and I think it's our sort of emotional, cultural authenticity of where everything has to be super sincere. And there's sometimes things said in hope that then shape us and shape ourselves towards something greater. So I think that idea of doing stuff when we don't feel like it, eventually you will feel like it. Um, and there's just an article in Relevant magazine last week, someone forwarded on to me about the more we look at digital images of co-workers and attractive people at work, the more we fall in love with them. And the more we look at certain products of digital images the more we fall in love with them. So these things are are things that we do as disciplines to set our heart's desire after them. 
and choosing things of God is, is, is a really important discipline, even when we don't feel like it. Um, oh, sorry. I don't think we really talked about this when, um, like, from the sermon or in the podcast, but I'd love to hear your opinion on it. Um, in terms of different versions of the Bible, I've heard a lot of people say, or specific people in my mind who think, you know, things like New Living Translation and the message are just attempts at being culturally relevant. And I think, I don't know, in terms of just getting your advice on what you think about how to interpret the different versions of scripture, both for new Christians, but also Christians who have, you know, been with Jesus all their lives. Yeah, to read. Yeah, well, just how to navigate that and how to, I guess, yeah, distinguish between what God's word is actually saying and mm. what it are attempts at trying to be culturally relevant. Mm. Yeah, look, it's a really interesting one, and I'm not even going to pretend to be an expert, um, but it, it's really interesting in the sense that um, maybe I'm just deliberately a little bit agnostic on it, in the sense that I think it's a combination of God reveals himself in scripture, um, but I think it's Calvin says in at the beginning of institutes that you know also you need the whole the the holy spirit to you know open your heart as you read scripture essentially is me paraphrasing what he says there um you know the other week someone just wrote to me um someone in our church who's sharing their faith with an unchurched person and they're like this person's never read scripture and they're like you know can i get them to read the message you know and and i'm like if that gets that person there and the spirit is going to use that like go for it <laughs> and i know people have come to faith through reading the message um, which is probably if you're going to look at one which is the most you know uh relevant approach or whatever you want to call it and there's bits where i look at it and I go, oh, it's a bit too american or it's you know peterson's because we don't be there or whatever um you know i still feel that the spirit will still meet people through that text um so i'm a little bit agnostic on it um uh but i i i, I think it's hard to go wrong when someone is reading scripture, regardless of, you know, the, the texts out there are all pretty good what we've got. Mm, awesome. awesome. But that's outside of my expertise. <laughs> <laughs> our, um, our second kind of um, part of the series was about prayer, as we've kind of already talked about. And I'm just, I'm just struck by, so we parked in the Lord's Prayer for that, um, for that sermon and just thinking about just what you were just talking about, Mark, and this kind of desire for sincerity in every action. And and I just was struck by the beauty, now that I'm thinking about it, of of the Lord's Prayer being this thing that we all adhere to and we all kind of ritualistically mm. template. Um, template, yeah, and that we all say together or, or, or at least all know what to say kind of thing. And it does kind of, that kind of flies right in the face of that. Every prayer, and that's probably why prayer life can be so dry sometimes because you're not always this kind of, really free agent spontaneous kind of um little like dandelion of free spirit um <laughs> sometimes you're dry and, and we t- we park there as well a lot when we were talking about our prayer life but yeah just the beauty of giving that template is something that i was thinking about and and i was just wondering mark do you have any reflections on dryness in in your kind of prayer life and how to um yeah how you uh, walk that line in your christian faith mm. Oh, look, I, I 100% agree. I think, the, you know, when Jesus teaches his disciples, he, he doesn't, you know, expecting him to almost go, you know, this is how you give this emotive, passionate, sincere prayer in any season, you know, like, 
Um, and he gives them the Lord's Prayer. And, and again, to, you know, going back to that Murdoch thing, it, it, it's, it's an aiming for something. You know, your will on earth as it is in heaven. It's speaking into this future reality. There's a wonderful, wonderful ad um, the Church of England did um, on the Lord's Prayer. And it's simply just different little people, like little shots of people reading or saying the Lord's Prayer. Um, one is the Archbishop of Canterbury himself just walking in the morning, early morning saying it. Then there's like a couple getting married saying it. There's a guy to grave saying it. There's a cop putting... Um, parking tickets on, on cars saying it. Actually, my friend Johnny is <laughs> on a train saying it. And, and what I love about that is it's just this beautiful vignette of all these different incredibly ordinary people saying the Lord's Prayer uh, in sort of contemporary Britain. And, and it's one of the best sort of Christian ads I think I've seen. Um, and, you know, some are upset, some are happy. Some are saying it as an act of hope. Some are saying it with devotion. And, and, and what I love about that is so Christ-centered versus human feeling-centered. And, and I think that we're so focused on how I'm feeling and my sincerity, we don't realize that it's actually about God and he's the one I look to and he has the faith for me when I feel I don't have faith. He, he has um, you know, the love when I don't feel like I have the love that actually I get all of it from abiding with him. Um, so I think that that's changed how I view prayer as something that I've always got to be emotional about. Um, yeah. By the way, that has got banned in British cinemas. Oh, I was wondering. I'm like, wow, I can't believe yeah. they had that ad. <laughs> yeah, I saw it when I was over there and then it was on the news and it was like, ad banned. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh good <Wow>. Lord. <laughs> What do we do now? Well, we've got two more quick sevens to get through. Um, we, we did have a week mark on um, God's family and, and I guess what it looks like to, to live in church community and el- there were elements of prayer and Bible reading and, and both how they could be done as a community and how beautiful that is. Um, but when we think about church culture, and this is I guess, zooming out of all your books, um, there's sometimes this tension of idealism of what the church family should be and how it should respond to X, Y, and Z versus the fact that we're going to, we're everyday people, we're people with, um, who lead messy lives. And, um, I think sometimes that's a bit of a hard balance to, um, to get in your head. Have you got any quick thoughts on, I guess, uh, the, 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 the posture perhaps that we should have as we, as we approach church, how we balance that, how do we, how do we uh, strive to be the best we can be? But how do we also keep in mind that although this is a house of rest and a house of nourishment and worship, it's still going to have those, those moments of, of chaos and messiness. Well, I think I'd even like ask that question of what are the beautiful images we see of church? You know, we have nice things like Acts 40, uh, not Acts 40, um, the image of, uh, you know, the church coming together, uh, Acts 2, 40 to 42, whatever it is, where they come together and they're breaking bread and sharing together. And you know, you've got that. But then you just go beyond that. Again, not much further, we've, further, we've got you know, a nice Sapphira stealing money, like tax scandal, early church already. Uh, we've got uh, you know, the, the false teachers coming in. You know, and there's, I think it's in Timothy, there's a line like, you know, these false teachers coming in to the houses of Christian women who are overrun with desires and sin. You know, it's like you've got a case of like incest happening in the Church of Christ. 
you've got division between the Hellenic believers and the Jewish believers. Um, the church is just a messy, wonderful explosion of grace. And I think that what Acts shows us and all the epistles is actually not this perfect church. It's messy, sometimes messier than our churches. And so scripture just ne never says to us that the church is going to be this utopian community. One of the things about the West is that very much driven in the West's idealism is this idea that we can reach a utopian community. And there's been all kinds of utopian communities, you know, within modernity that have sprung up. And the church does not give us, a, the, scriptural, the scriptural church does not give us a utopia. So I think there's this element that we've got to drop that dream that the utopia comes when heaven and earth are reunited and rather the 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 church is this place where yes the kingdom's breaking out but it's breaking out as people die to their flesh and live out the spirit so in in the church um you know it's a place where you actually go to have your flesh killed your flesh is not going to be killed when you're living in isolation and not connected to annoying people the brilliant thing about the church is that it's it's non-homogenous as much as we can make our websites look brilliant they're still going to get someone who may have an acquired brain injury who's sitting next to you and you would never sit next to them in a million years because we arrange our lives around people who look like us and you have to sit next to them and say you know that's my brother and sister in christ the shock of the early church um, and i remember hearing others mark strong um say this that imagine the shock of a roman officer in the roman army you know guy of means people listen to what he says and he encounters christ and goes to one of these early churches and sits down for an agape meal and has to sit next to a slave girl that's just stunningly shocking at that time in history and and see her and say you're my sister there's no longer greek or jew male or female that you're actually connected to me. And so I think the church, we've seen it wrong. We've seen it as a utopian community. It's not, it's actually, Todd Hunter says, and, I, and I, when I heard this, I just it was like something clicked in my head. He says, church is a spiritual discipline. And I was like, hang on, I understand prayers as a spiritual discipline. I understand fasting as a spiritual discipline. I understand reading my Bible as a spiritual discipline, but I want to go to church and I just want it to rock my soul. And I just want to be entertained. And I just want to be around awesome people who give me amazing community. I don't think of it as a spiritual discipline. And so the church is actually a vehicle where we come together to flight the flesh together. It's a place where we, we, we can't do Christianity and that social sense of what it is to be truly human outside of the people of God being remade. It's a place where we're going to be taught to be forgiven. We're going to be taught to forgive others. You know, because Jean Vanier says, you know, I come to community for myself and I stay for others. I think that's the essence of church, which we have to understand. It's a vehicle for God to rebirth us in Christ's likeness. Yeah. And again, like that was one of our big uh, talking points on that particular podcast episode when we were saying, mm. um, to a degree, you do choose your church, but as far as people who are in it, mm. that's 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 the, the tricky stuff, hey, because we just, we yeah. People are different, and that's both. Um, what it, that is the beauty of church, isn't it? Because they just they, there are so many stories, and so many people have the ability to sort of just speak into your own life who aren't like-minded. So, mm. yeah. Um, my it, friend, oh, oh, sorry. So my friend and colleague here read Sarah, 
says we've almost got to get rid of community and replace it with fellowship because community is such a loaded term. Mm. Fellowship is a much more biblical term. And I think community, while it's not a bad word necessarily itself, co-commercial self-community. You know, so people come to church for community, but what are they really meaning? And I think re-engaging with that biblical concept of fellowship is is a really interesting, I think, paradigm shift. Mm. I mean, you just said that, I mean, church is a spiritual discipline that you just said that was a click moment for you when you heard that. Uh, just a click moment for me everyone, just now when I just heard it. So. <laughs> yep, yep. I'll be thinking about that one tonight. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> um, so we really focused on, you know, in our podcast that the difficulty in showing up mm. and mm. it's very much a selfish thing to be like, no, I don't really feel like I'm going to church. And the tension between figuring out whether you are actually in the right you know, mental headspace to be dealing with people and to be loving people or whether you need time with God or whether you're just being lazy. <laughs> and so mm. having it be a spiritual discipline, you know, there's a lot of times when you don't feel like you're in the headspace to read the Bible. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah. That's a great challenge. And I think too, there's the theology of the incarnation and a the theology of presence that comes through. So there's an element that if we are being remade in Christ-likeness and Christ's great gift to us is Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnated amongst us. Um, you know, Scripture promised when the Messiah comes in the Messianic community that there'll be these shepherds who heal. But that's actually us. So when you don't go to church, you're actually robbing people of the presence of God. That will be, yeah, that's another mind blow. <laughs> so you can't see us, Mark, because we've turned off the webcam because of uh, technical problems. But uh, there have been several moments throughout this whole recording where each of us has made sort of like the mind blown <laughs> uh, action. Um, action. <laughs> just, uh, that was just another one. Um, which is... There was silence. I'm like, has it, has it dropped out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so good. Um, we'll round it up. So um, at, the, at the time of recording this, we haven't spoken about perseverance. That's actually this coming Sunday. But uh, I just thought, um, Mark, I, I heard part of your story through a sermon you gave at Red. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was late last year. You were doing um, a series called More Than Sermons. And um, yeah, you shared a story which really resonated with, um, with me and I guess w- where I think we're going to go um, from a perseverance point of view. But Basically, you told us um, something that hadn't really been in the public realm before. You were speaking about uh, living a victorious faith. And you mentioned that you had been walking in defeat for a while. And I guess um, our question to you today is, as someone who has first-hand experience with, um, with this, this idea of living in defeat, um, how is the idea of depth working off the story of the tree in the forest that grows deep roots to survive the, you know, the stormy seasons of life? How has that idea of depth played a role in your eventual restoration in Jesus? Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, just to, to give you sort of the thumbnail sketch that it was essentially a time when um, I realized that, you know, my ministry was, God was asking me into deep things and, you know, the books thing and um, was sort of taking off and church was growing and God was really asking me to, into a deeper form of responsibility and call. And um, in your head, you have unwritten, unspoken expectations around that. And that, you know, well, okay, I'll do this, but you do this. And so around that time, um, you know, essentially 
cut a long story short, I was um, in Queensland uh, speaking and I was staying by myself at a hotel and, and effectively um, had what I now know was a sort of bipolar episode. Um, and it was just uh, one of the worst nights of my life. And that began a journey into being diagnosed, you know, and, and working out how to live with bipolarity. And it made a lot of sense about a lot of my life and up to that point, um, but not really wanting to connect all the dots. Um, and, you know, sort of having this, this then conversation with God, like you ask me deep into ministry, um, okay, and now you've allowed this to happen and you don't seem to be taking it away. Um, okay, so what do I do? The doctor who I was seeing said to me that I need to have a quiet life. Um, and then I think it was a week or two after that, um, we found out we were having twins. <laughs> oh boy! <Wow. laughs> and it was just—it was just full on. It was sixteen weeks of you know when bipolarity. You're meant to sleep well. You're meant to rest. You're meant to avoid stress. And I was doing a church turnaround. It was just crazy on the ministry front. Um, it was um, crazy with books. It was crazy with um, travel. It was, it was, it was, and then in the midst of this period of coming into that then with like 16 weeks of, you know, three hours sleep a night, um, often broken. And, you know, it was this really thing where I, for, for a while after that, I just walked in what I would call defeat. So it was like, all right, I'm doing this. I'm surviving. I'm here. I'm still going ahead, God. Other people are falling off. I'm not. I'm going ahead. And, and what I realized was that, I was living out this kind of defeat and the defeat story was actually really about expectations. And it was an expectation that I could not speak out, but actually was that, okay. So I read about people like Watchman Me, and I read about martyrs and I read about other people who suffer in history and really they're, they're in a different, different ball, ballpark. Um, and really Western Christians like me, um, if we're going to do hard stuff, we need allowances and when those allowances aren't there and God asks more of you, you can go in two directions. You can either pull away from your call, pull away from your faith, or you can walk deeper into it. And I just got to this point where I, I literally said to God, right, this is it. Unless you're going to give me some leeway here. I need some sabbatical. I need some rich businessman to pull out of the sky and, you know, pay for me to have a rest somewhere. And when that didn't happen, and I came to my church, actually in the exact same room I'm sitting in now. We've got a house attached to our offices at the church and it's sort of a meeting space. And I came here on a Monday night and I prayed and it was sort of one of those moments like, all right, I'm going to keep going in ministry. You've got to give me something here. And I felt God clearly call me. Instead of going into a rest or getting something, he asked me to fast. And I was angry. <laughs> I was really <laughs> and I ended up fasting um, for seven weeks and it was just a turning point in my life. And weirdly what began to happen was I had to then just go into this completely super disciplined life. Um, you know, music which was fast, I couldn't listen to. Movies which were too, you know, stressful, I had to pull back from. I had to get to bed early. I had to get up early. I don't drink alcohol. I I cut out a lot of sugars, just stuff that I enjoyed. I had to cut back on everything. I felt like I'm being asked to give up everything here. Really, absolutely small stuff compared to the great saints of history, what they've given up. 
Western problems. Yeah, first world problems. <laughs> but at the time, what I realized was that I was then being prophetically moved from the mode of my life, which had been deconstructing stuff to a new mode of rebuilding. My life had to begin to show order. And I had to rebuild. And I felt God say to me, as part of this process, and it took a couple of years, I want you to live in joy. I want you to live in victory. Even though you're walking ahead with me, Mark, you are still have a negative tone in your voice. You're defeated. And the spirit comes in joy. I began to read Paul and Paul talking about being made, you know, Christ love being made perfect in his weakness. And that just began to speak to my life. And what I sort of feel now is that all these things that I learned and a lot of it, you know, the behavioral psychology stuff that we talked about before, a lot of it, I just read because I'm like, how do I actually do this and survive? And so I instigated these little nudges in my life um, and, and began to just build in my own personal life a discipleship-rich environment, which weirdly now when this sort of life crash is happening to all these people and 80% of our people are anxious and mental health is everywhere, I'm now preaching from my own life. I just did a series on discipleship-rich environment and it's all just stuff I've learned from my life. And so perseverance, I think, is one of the most important things at this time. In a time of cultural fragility, you go in the opposite spirit. In a time of being a snowflake, as lots of people call people today, and being negative, and oh, I don't feel like it in the, you know, the age of meh. Moving forward with robustness, with positivity, not in some sort of American, and Tony Robbins positive <laughs> but actually Jesus has died for me this is good news he's called me to live at this time wow goodness me I get to live in Australia I get to live in Melbourne and do this this is a privilege um, and and that just changed me it changed my church it changed my marriage it's changed my family and I just think we're pushed defeat on us um we're oppressed now by the achievement culture. There's, you know, Lipovetsky talks about this, Bimchul Han talks about this, this idea that we used to be oppressed by, hey, don't do this. Now we're oppressed by, you should be doing it at all. And so we're in this weird anxiety and, and achievement culture simultaneously. You know? So everyone's like got their active wear on and their Fitbit and running but then at night they're sitting in their lounge room feeling like they're hopeless and lost all motivation. It's all happening at once. People have run off their feet yet not doing anything. We have churches filled with people working too much and working not enough. And so this spirit of living in victory, I think is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools when people see it in your life and they see there's something about you. So that comes from persevering. Paul talks about this, persevering, running the race like an athlete. Uh, is so centrally important, particularly for young adults, Christians today. I, I don't really. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I can't. That's just, for me. I found that uh, insanely challenging and encouraging. That's really all I can add to that. Um, and I found that story, Mark. Like, I think, um, like we were talking about the, the beautiful thing about some church, like about churches, really, is that we all have. We're all different. We'll have different stories. I think there's just this, um, there's this misconception, especially that pastors are just, they just get on with it and, and they're sort of superhumans. And um, I just, I think, as I said, hearing that story when I was listening to that sermon a few um, a few months ago, it just had a profound impact. Um, but I know 
I don't, I don't really know what to say. Do you guys have anything to add to Perseverance? Because our, um, our, our guest next week, we're, um, sorry, our guest for the Perseverance um, episode will be uh, actually one of our ministers, Ron. So that'll, again, be really yeah, something to think about. But um, I don't know. I just want to say thank you for that story because that's yeah, fantastic. Thanks. Mm. That's yeah. so good. Yeah. Super encouraging as well when, you know, often people talk about really dark times in their life, but it's cool to hear like a dark time walking in defeat that was also a time where your church was flourishing and you were getting lots of, mm. you know, you were deep in the busyness of life that people see as success. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just super encouraging. I think it's embracing through the seasons of life and embracing um, absences is, is a really key spiritual thing. Like I notice a lot of young women at our church and guys when they have their first child then just go through this real interesting time all of a sudden freedom is gone but again to coming back to what i said earlier it's finding the meaning when freedom is limited mm. is one of the things that people put in well i think that will be a great spot just to wrap this up and say thank you mark for um yeah for agreeing to come on and it started with a simple tweet and i think i was just <laughs> surprised that someone in, in, in australia responds to a tweet um, but uh yeah, um, I know from just talking to your uh, assistant there that um, you've been under the pump with a lot of things. And like you were saying to us before we started recording that you're going to America for a few things. So from all of us, really, thank you. Yeah, um, yeah thank you. Because this this means a lot. And I know that it'll be a blessing for our church community. And yeah, hopefully definitely. anyone random who doesn't go to our church, you may be listening to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um, so thank you so much, Mark. And um, we hope that your US trip goes well and... Uh, if anyone from our church goes to Melbourne, we'll tell them to swing by and say hello at Red. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say a final thing? Please. A thing of and sure. this doesn't have to be included. But I think I think you guys mentioned, or one of you mentioned before. I can't remember the uh, the camera was off. But I think there's a sense of looking at the Western Church as a time of sorting, and I just really want to encourage you guys that there's these little creative minorities out there across Australia and they're like little flames. And where we are is we're at the, we're at the end of a great push that really began in 19, at the end of the 19th century in 1901 when all of these different Christian ministries began and there was a real move of God in the beginning of the 20th century. And if you can imagine like a big weight being moved that had a lot of kinetic energy and it's just stopping now and we're coming to the end of a lot of that stuff. But the good news of that is actually it's time for something new to begin. And I just want to encourage you guys to not just see yourself as a bunch of guys in your 20s, to actually see yourself as the beginning of God wanting to get something happening again. And that's the real sense I get spiritually. So I just encourage you all to keep going and to go deeper and to dream big dreams of what God could do again because it's going to begin with people like you asking these questions that's my encouragement thank you so Thanks, much Mark. that's amazing yeah. encouragement <laughs> <laughs> i might get that on a little plaque and put that <laughs> under my monitor at work and i'm just Mark thinking yeah. when <laughs> i'm just thinking oh i feel really tired yeah. <laughs> oh. awesome. yeah, that's that was beautiful thank yeah. you yeah thank you so much mark no worries um thanks for your time no pleasure. and uh who knows where this podcast idea will go but 
we might be able to get you yeah. one again one day. <laughs> <laughs> In 20 years, Kembo has recovered from all the energy. <laughs> uh, well, again, to everyone who has been listening, thank you so much. Uh, this has been a real joy today. Like, it's been yeah. um, absolutely amazing. And, um, yeah, as Mark said, just keep thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and thanks again. Awesome. Cool. See you guys. Bye.